I'm Sydney Druckmann of New York State's Battery Park City Authority. On behalf of Governor Mario M. Cuomo, I'd like to welcome you to the third year of Sounds at Sunset in Hudson River Park. I apologize for the lack of picnic space. The one should be ready within two weeks. I would like to remind you that we will be back this Thursday, June 9th at 6 p.m. for the serialized reading of Laurie Coleman's Happy All the Time. I would like to thank the Pan American Center which produced tonight's event. Richard Price has been called a persuasive urban chronicler, a street corner Mencken, and an expert on the fulsome and frenzied aspects of New York City. Born in the Bronx, educated at Cornell and Columbia, Mr. Price was only 24 when he published his first novel, The Wanderers, which one critic called an outstanding work of art. He has gone on to write other novels, Blood Brothers, Ladies Man, and The Breaks, and is one of the few writers today who move easily between Hollywood and New York, garnering both critical praise and a huge following for his screenplays and books. His most recent novel, Clockers, was nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award, and his screenplay of it is being directed by Spike Lee. Another film, Kiss of Death, is currently in production, and he is now at work on a script with Jonathan Demme. Please welcome Richard Price. Um, it was explained to me that sort of read half, talk half. Um, at this point, I haven't written anything since Clockers prose-wise, so it's almost like I'd like to read tenth, talk nine-tenths. Um, I, I haven't read from my earlier books in, in like five, ten years, it feels like. So I just thought I would sort of scare myself but by reading something I haven't read and for some getting astigmatism. So I saw three of them. Um, uh, well, the thing I'm going to read from is Ladies Man. Um, when I picked up this book today, I couldn't remember the name of the main character. Um, but it's, he's still here. Um, all right, this is a, what Ladies Man's about. It's sort of like the lost weekend, but with sex instead of alcohol. Uh, it's about a, a Fuller Brush man who uh, lives with his um, girlfriend in Manhattan, and she leaves him, and he's, he becomes completely unmoored and goes through a whole sexual gauntlet for a week. Um, and at this point in the book, it's, you know, it was easy. I wrote the whole book in three weeks. It was really easy because I, I, I only had seven chapters, and each chapter was a day of the week. So I, I planned the whole book out with a big calendar. So what's going to happen on Monday? Bang, 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 bang. What's going to happen on Tuesday? Bang, bang. And I, went, I, I just calendared the whole book out, and I set this goal for myself to get through Monday on Monday. I didn't exactly do that, but I got through... I got, I did the whole, it's amazing, three weeks I did the whole book, and so I figured, great, the next book I'll, you know, be doing in three days, and after that I'll, you know, knock one off in between, you know, commercials on the cartoon channel, and, you know, then I'll just think a book, you know, and of course the next book took uh, four years, and was half as good, uh, well, that's why they have horse races. <clears throat> Anyways, this, at this point, this uh, guy, Kenny, um, 
is is he can't sleep. It's five o'clock in the morning, and he's turning on TV. This is this book was also written about 1977, so it's like a whole different sensibility about um, you know, pardon the euphemism, sexual liberation. Um, and this is just him getting up. He turns on the TV. Uh, whoops, where'd it go? Okay, I turned on my. Uh, let me see. I hit the buttons on the cable box, gave the dials a quick spin, scored for 20 minutes worth of the Three Stooges dubbed in Spanish, then switched to some organic-looking bozo in rimless glasses and plaid shirt sitting behind a telephone switchboard. He had long, stringy hair, a hairline that receded to his, side, receded to his sideburns, and a forehead you could have landed a jet on. He smiled out at me like he didn't realize he was on the air. It must have been a local TV, cable TV station. The black and white reception had that cheap shakiness like the roving eye cameras in a supermarket. A telephone number zipped in under his chest and he came to life. Well, it's 5 a.m. and I'm Rod Ramada, so Ramada's in and it's time for Rod Ramada's swap line. Rod Ramada, I repeated out loud. His voice was soft but not rich, like a college DJ. Our number here at the swap line is on your screen below me. Please limit yourself to three items you want to sell or swap. No mattresses, stocks, bonds, or real estate. And give your phone number a little slower and louder than you usually would in a normal conversation, okay, people? The phone on his switchboard started ringing. Here we go, first call of the night. Hello, swap line, you're on the air. Hello, am I on the air? The voice sounded like a middle-aged lady. It was crackly and riddled with static, like from a crystal radio. Yes, Rod, I have a child's rocking horse and a G.I. Joe doll with removable clothes and weapons. I'm asking $10 for the horse and $3 for the doll. The horse is very sturdy. Both Kenny and Larry played with it when they were younger. My name is Mrs. Moskowitz, and I can be reached at TU29416. Rod Ramada kept the phone pressed to his temple, his head down as though he was hearing heartbreaking news. You know, Rod, the little one, Kenny, just entered the Bronx High School of Science, so there's really no need to keep their toys around. She made a laughing noise, and Ramada chuckled weakly. Okay, then. He hung up on her as she was about to say something else. No good. You don't hang up on people like that. A little compassion and manners goes a long way, and he could have talked to the old lady a little longer. He wasn't network prime time. Things like that got people on my shit list fast. Hello, swap line. You're on the air. How are you, Rod? I have six early issues of Crypt of Terror in mint condition that I would like very much to trade one for one for any Supermans from before 1945 or two for one for any star-spangled war comics from the Korean War. Also, Rod, if you or your listeners are, inter are interested, I would like to start an old comics collecting club. My name is Aaron Gold, and I can be reached at 516-332-4140. That's in Lake Success, Rod. I'm sorry to inconvenience any of your New York City proper listeners, but I can't accept any collect calls. Okay, then. The kid's voice had that perfect, nervous, nasal diction of a highly intelligent, totally fucked up mama's boy. Sad case, but I was a freak for comics in my day, too. I even had some crypt of terrors myself. To be honest, I felt like being in a comic book club with that creep would have been cozy in a rainy day sort of way. Out of habit, I poked my stomach, and it felt like si silly putty. I put my pillow, I put LaDonna's, that's his girlfriend, ex-girlfriend's, I put LaDonna's pillow under mine to prop up my head more. It was nice having a queen-size bed to yourself. Hello, swap line, you're on the air. Good morning, Rod, my name is Mr. Rosenbush, and I got a wife about 50 years old with a big mouth. I would like to swap her for a young broad with a nice body. <laughs> that had me sitting up. The guy sounded like my grandfather. I wanted to laugh, but it felt weird laughing with no one around. Ramada was chuckling, his shoulders jiggling up and down. 
What a gentle, phony son of a bitch. Haha, <laughs> no seriously, Rod, I love my wife very much. We've been married 31 years and she's asleep now. Have you got anything to swap? Huh? No, Rod, but I want to ask you, that last caller, Aaron Gold with the joke books, didn't that guy sound a little too old to be playing with joke books? Well, you know, different strokes for different folks. Rod adjusted his glasses. Stroked this. Yeah, okay, good night, Rod. Thank you. Hello, swap line, you're on the air. I turned myself around, cleared away the pillow, stuck my feet between the mattress and the headboard and did sit-ups. Hello, swap line, you're on the air. Is anybody there? All that could be heard was a tentative breathing, a shuddering, as if someone was either very cold or about to cry. Hello, is anybody there? He repeated, ducking, as if to look under the screen. So hang up, schmuck. Oh, good, I was yelling at the TV now. Rod, hey, hey. It sounded like a kid, 16 maybe. I'm sorry, she started to cry. I'm so depressed, I don't... Later for sit-ups. I'm sorry. There was nothing after that other than some very disturbing snuffling and ha-ha breathing. Ramada straightened up and frowned for real. Hey, what's your name? No, no, I'm sorry. Suddenly she belted out a moan like she was going through natural childbirth. Oh, God, she gasped. I'm going to kill myself. Hey, don't. Don't hang up. Hey, hey. No, I'm going to. I'm going to. I was on my feet. I felt as if I'd been goosed with an icicle. Hey, look, whoever that was, don't do anything. Call back. Please, please call back. Ramada pinched his temples. Oh, Jesus. The phone rang. Yes. Listen. The voice was young male. Listen, I would like to talk to that chick that just called you, man, the one who wants to kill herself. Hey, listen, baby, don't do it. I want to tell you, man, my life was more bad than anybody's. You know, I was on drugs. I got off it. I was in jail. I did my time, and now I'm free. Listen, you don't get no breaks in life. You got to fight for everything, but you got to fight. You got to want to, you know? Because sometimes I think that people are their own worst enemies, but they can be their own best friend, too. And life can be beautiful, baby. See what I mean? Now, you feeling blue? You feeling lonely? That's okay. We all been there. You feel like doing deep six? We all been there, too. Okay, now, you need someone to talk to? Sit down and have, a, have coffee with? I was going to say smoke, but I cut out cigarettes and reefer because that shit will kill you, man. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give out my number on the air. I ain't afraid, and I believe in people. My name is Little Flower, and my number is 222-9626. Any of you people feeling that way, you can call Little Flower, and I'll rap to you, because life can be beautiful. And Rod, Rod had been punctuating Little Flower, get my hand tied up, had been punctuating Little Flower's rap the whole time with sage head nods. Rod, I think you are a beautiful cat, man. Thank you, he mumbled. So you call me, baby. Any of you people, you call me Little Flower, 222-9626. I wrote down the number on the corner of the TV guide cover. I couldn't help but He made me feel positive. Maybe me, him, and Aaron Gold could start a psycho comics club. Hey, please, whoever that girl was, if you're still listening, please call back. Please, people care. The number's right on the screen. Rod looked sincere. He was okay. I was always quick to jump down people's throats. Hello, swap line. Hello, Rod. Some lady with a Bronx accent so thick I could have probably guessed not only what part of the Bronx but what building she was from. <laughs> if I can, I would like to say something to that young lady. Please do. I just want to say that I had a daughter who would be about your age now from your voice. We lost her two years ago. She had Lou Gehrig's disease. It was a terrible blow. I don't think my husband will ever be the same. But right up to the end, she was so full of life, full of love. She knew she was dying, but you wouldn't know it from her mood, her spirits. You would have thought she was in the hospital for a cold. I sat back on my bed. She would say, Ma, I don't want to see you cry. The lady started choking up. Ma, you, you. She hung up. That one had me under the blankets. I hadn't called my mother in a month. 
I wrote down Pistachio Valentine's Day next to Little Flower's number. Every Valentine's Day when I was a kid, I would buy the old lady a heart-shaped candy box, dump out the candy, and load it up with red Zenobia pistachios. I was going to do it again this year and blow her out of her socks. Swap line. Hey, Rod. Knock, knock. This isn't dial-a-joke. No, please. This is good. Just quick. Knock, knock. Unbelievable. Ramada side. Who's there? Alan Freed. A chortle. Alan Freed who? Alan Freed my people, but Lincoln Freed yours. A high-pitched giggle and a click. I kicked off the blankets. Ramada muttered something like idiot and apologized to all offended listeners. This show was great. I ran into the bathroom, pissed fast, and scooted back in. The heat was off, and my goosebumps, and the, my goosebumps gave my skin the texture of quilted baggies. Obviously on drugs, Rod. Obviously just wants our attention, and I think people should stop calling, trying to talk to her, because she's nothing but a goddamn spoiled brat. And if her parents knew how to raise children to begin with, she'd be home in bed, fast asleep, and everything else anybody has to say on the subject is crap. Good night. Says you, I jumped up and shot out my jaw like Mussolini. I hated people like that. They should have their lungs boiled in oil. I punched the palm of my hand, and they ruled the world, those people. I took a long walk around the room. Ramada shrugged. Swap line. I'm a mother, and I think what that lady who just called said was cruel and stupid. Honey, if you're out there, don't listen to that. We all wish you well, and we all love you. And Rod, I think you're doing a wonderful job, and God bless you, and she's crap. Goddamn right I punched my palm again and got a terrific spasm at the base of my neck that fanned out in the shape of an ink blot down my spine and across my shoulders. I pretended my hands were someone else's, not LaDonna's, though. Then I felt this rush, this elation, this strength like something good was about to happen. I felt like something was rising in me. I was going to help that girl. The pain lifted from my neck like it had sprouted wings. Swap line, hey, it was the girl. All right, I was totally wired, ready to help. I was hunched over like a shortstop after the crack of the bat. Ramada sat up straight in his chair, me and him. Look, I'm okay now, she sounded beat. I'm okay now, I freak, but I'm okay now. Still hunched over, my head cocked up. I listened to her carefully, checked out the mood of her voice. Rod looked flushed and exhausted with relief, like a cop who had just delivered a baby in the back of a cab. Are you sure? He took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay now, it's over. She hung up. Rod collapsed backwards in his chair, slid his fingers under his glasses, and rubbed his face. The phone rang, but he ignored it. I felt like a tire with a slow leak. I collapsed on my bed. I was depressed, not high like I expected to be. The fingers of pain crawled back into my neck. Maybe the next suicide call was going to be from me, but I wouldn't be bullshitting. Swap line, well, I'll be goddamned. Another middle-aged lady. How's that for gratitude? She didn't even thank us for helping. Thank us for calling in, for worrying about her. I'm sick, just disgusted. Good night. Rodner stared at his receiver in disbelief. I inflated to my feet. You stupid. My eyes were almost shut in hate. My chest felt 60 inches across. Die, I whispered. Swap line. It was the girl again. She was sobbing. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean anything. I didn't. Hey, hey, it's okay, it's okay. Oh, no, no, oh, God, I didn't want to. I didn't. Hey, don't hang up. Don't click buzz of dial time we had her i shook my fist at the tv slapped my forehead the noise that came from my throat was not of this planet i was out there i sat on the floor in my underwear in front of the tv and dialed the number on the screen busy 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 please call back ramada was pleading into the cameras you had one grouch think of all the people who care i kept getting busy so i punched the phone smacked the receiver against the wall and kept dialing swap line a husky male voice. Stop sucking up to her. She's laughing at us all. 
swap line. Hey, I got a pair of Nordica ski boots. I want to swap a self for cross-country skis. My name is Larry, and I'm at KI75699. Swap line. I jerked back. Ramada was talking in my ear. My heart felt like a bee in a bottle. Hello? My voice came at me from the television along with a barrage of sonic squawks and flutters. Move back from your set. Ramada was looking at me through the screen. I nodded okay to him and hopped backwards into bed. Hello? Still the interference. Move back more. Sorry. I dropped to my knees on the other side of the bed and knelt, elbows on the mattress. I felt like a radio man in a foxhole. Hello, Rod? I couldn't get used to hearing my voice come at me from the television. Ramada wasn't looking at me. All my anger drained out in my confusion. Hey, you know, people have been calling and saying she's bad news, a junkie and such. Rod, could you look at me? Rod slowly looked up. That's not right, because maybe she isn't going to kill herself, but she's lonely, you know? I mean, lonely enough to call up a TV swap show in the middle of the night and ask for help. Doesn't mean anything if she's actually going to kill herself, okay? You know what I mean? That's true, Ramada in my ear. I could hear my breathing over the television. Yeah, okay, thank you, that's all. Click, yow, I was sweating. My hand was glued to the receiver. I gripped my chin with my thumb and forefinger. How did all those clowns sound so coherent? I started playing back every word I said. Swap line. Yeah, Rod, you know that guy that just called? My heart stopped. It's assholes like him that make people kill themselves. I have a right to my opinion, and no moron is going to tell me not to. That's true. I went into a numb stun. I gawked at the screen, my jaw on the floor. I felt betrayed. Then I shook the shit from my head, grabbed the phone and dialed. Three busies, then swap line. You tell that bitch she's the goddamn moron and asshole, not me. She don't care if that kid lives or dies. She probably hates her kids, you know what I mean? My voice yelled at me from the television. I started butting my head into the air. Whatever happened to decency, huh? I slammed the phone down. My kneecaps were chattering with tension. I yawned nervously and my whole body shivered like a loose window in its windstorm. Swap line. You tell that prick to go fuck himself. Swap line, fuck you, you bitch, fuck you. That was that, the end. I vaulted over to bed and tried to turn off the TV, forgetting the remote control box on the night table. My fingers were too sweaty, and I wound up pulling the plug by stomping on the wire. I walked around, bumping into furniture, and then I walked nose first into the edge of the bedroom door. I staggered back, grabbed a hammer over the bookcase, and smacked the door like I was Thor. My floor was littered with paint chips like confetti. I staggered into the living room. It was getting light out. God damn it, God damn it. I realized I was snarling and screaming at the swag lamp over the dinette table. It was six in the morning. I hadn't slept, wasn't even tired, just withered. When I went back into the bedroom, there was little flower's number scribbled on the TV guide. The phone receiver was still sweaty. My nose hurt like a bitch. What the hell? I dialed his number. It was busy. It was like an out-of-body experience reading that. It's like, you know, because you look at your stuff you wrote 10 years ago, and as you're reading, you're editing, you know, you go, oh, no, 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 no. No, wait, come on, kid. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, because the older I get, like, the more, the more shaky I get about my writing, because I feel like the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. But when I was in my 20s and writing all that stuff, I was completely unconflicted. I just thought it was the best. I, I didn't know enough to not know it wasn't the best. So I just remember, I was, I was just so in love with everything I wrote. It was just great. And now I can't even read it. And uh, I, hope it's, I hope this is better anyway. 
this is like from a whole nother thing. This is from Clockers. It's just a monologue. Um, clock in, in this uh, scene, uh, rather than read, read you the whole, um, tell you the whole story, it's about a policeman who's about uh, who is arrested a kid for murder. The kid came in and confessed, and this policeman, after he arrests the kid, doesn't really believe the kid did the murder. The kid basically said he did. So um, people wouldn't look for his brother, who's a drug dealer, because if his brother was arrested, his brother would go away forever. So it's a, sort of a tale of two cities thing. Tis a far better thing I've done. Because this kid's pretty straight. He works at McDonald's, and he's married, and his kid's in a now account. And his brother's a drug dealer. And the guy who arrested him felt, always felt something was wrong. So one of the things that he does to, to check on this kid to see if he's as good as he seems, as, as straight a citizen as he seems, is he goes to check to see if the kid has a criminal record. And he goes to the Bureau of Criminal Identification, and he finds out that the kid does have one charge on his uh, record, and it's assaulting an officer, but the charge was dropped. And when the charge is assaulting an officer, but it's dropped, it usually means it's probably the officer's fault. Uh, you know, and the officer was just trying to cover his ass by arresting the kid that he beat up that he shouldn't have beaten up. Um, what this character, what this cop Rocco does is he reaches out to the officer who arrested uh, this kid, and he's going to ask him now, what are the circumstances of how this kid you came to arrest this kid for assaulting you? What's the story? And this cop that's telling the monologue, his name is Thumper. And he's a he's sort of a, a housing cop that specializes in uh, uh, you know you know just dr drug drug roll ups. I mean you know they go on a corner where they're selling dope and they hit the ground running and try to grab whoever they can. And there's a whole sort of ritual dance to this whole thing between the dealers and the cops, you know. And there's one kid in in a drug crew whose job is to stand there and when he hears the busted muffler of the one car that they all know is the plainclothes cop from two blocks away, the kid raises up and tells that, you know, that the cops are coming and the kid should walk, and his kid's called the Razor. And the cops need this kid to say, you know, to, to signify that they're coming because they, want, they need to see who's going to walk because they need to see who to go after. So they want the Razor to do his job, so, you know, it's like beating the bushes to see you know, which, where, you know, where the foxes are. But the razor has to raise up in a certain way as if he's being furtive about it because the cops are very hinky about being treated disrespectfully. If the kid does it, you know, with no fear, then the cops get pissed. You know, you got to pretend you're afraid of him at least. It's, it's a whole, it's like a whole peacock dance, you know. So anyways, Rocco was asking Thumper about, um, now I forgot the name of this character, to Victor. Rocco's uh, asking this cop, Thumper, about the arrest of this uh, kid named Victor Dunham. Um, let's see. What went down on that thing with you? I'm trying to put this kid together. Oh, yeah, that was fucked up. Between me and you, that was fucked up. We were doing a roll-up on the Dumont side of the projects, and there's this kid, Victor. And at first I thought he was on his own because he's got this McDonald's monkey suit on like he's going to work. But I see this other kid raise up right next to him, and then he raises up. You know, a real big, healthy skyhook says 5-0, which is the city, like Hawaii 5-0. Says 5-0, clear as a bell, and he's looking right at me like, fuck you. 
It's like if they raise up on the slide, there's some kind of respect in it at least, fear, something. But this kid, 5-0, right in my face. Plus, plus, I thought I saw him throw something, you know, drop something. So I'm out of the car like a shot. I get excited sometimes, you know, upset. So I grab this arrogant, disrespectful, shit-skin sneak. I throw him against the fence, and the kid goes all, like, startled on me. I say, are you raising up on me? The kid says, what? Like, I'm crazy. Then he says, I was goofing, like I'm supposed to believe he was just making fun of the real raises, right? I get him up against the fence. I say, what did you drop? He says, I didn't drop nothing. What are you doing to me? I say, shut up. Then I go through his pockets. He's got a set of car keys, but that's it. I make him drop his pants, check up under his Johnson, go into his socks, nothing. I say, stay there. So, meanwhile, the peoples be starting to come around saying, yo, Thumper, this is a working man. This is a working man. This is Victor Thumper. He's a working man. You know, the usual bumpy bullshit. Big Chief and him are down a ways doing some other douchebags. I'm alone. I got this kid against the fence and I wanted to nail him bad. I mean, 5-0. He said it right in my face. So, like, now we got a crowd. I tell this kid, don't move. And I'm on my knees. I'm looking in the garbage for the dope he threw. He's standing there acting all outraged. The people are gassing up his head, gassing up my head. Yo, Thumper, this boy be okay. Thumper, this boy's a father. Yo, Thumper, this ain't right. That ain't right. And I hate being called Thumper by them. And it's hot, and I'm on my knees in the grass and the humidity and the garbage, and this kid's starting to talk to himself now, saying, I'm going to be late. Damn shit, damn shit. I tell him, shut up. And I tell the herd the same thing, but it's like a party now. And all of a sudden, this kid starts walking, just walking away. I couldn't believe it. I got an audience on my hand, and this Yamo's walking. I get up, he's mumbling, I got to get to work, I got to get to work. Not even to me, like to himself. I throw him back on the fence, I say, don't move, I'm going to flatten your head right here and now. People start going, woo, and oh, oh, you know, like they do. I go back into the grass, and the kid starts walking again. I don't believe it. And the crowd's yelling, fight the power, fight the power, like I'm some kind of symbol or something. So I grab him, not grab him, all I did was I just flicked his hat, you know, a fingertip, like a little head slap to flip that stupid McDonald's hat off his head, get his attention. Next thing I know, the kid wigs. He turns and he shoves me, boom, right in the chest. The herd goes nuts, right? Right? I gave him a shot like... Thumper flicked his cigarette into the street and put the heel of his hand under Rocco's jaw and slightly pushed upwards. I almost snapped his neck. So Big Chief and them come running. I got this kid down, knee in the back, cuffing him up. The kid's crying. I got to get to work, like crying, like tears. Everybody's going, fight the power, fight the power. And I'm thinking, we gots to go. Every old timer in the projects is like inching up, saying, officer, officer. You know, like trying to get me to cool out. But hey, like this little prick shoves me in front of a herd and I'm all alone. I'll show you cool out. So we get him up. All of a sudden, his mother comes running. She's all bug-eyed and shit. She's screaming, where's my boy? Putting her hands on me. And I'm yelling at her friends, get her away from me. And I'm dragging this kid to the car, and she's shrieking, don't worry, baby, don't worry, baby, bugging her eyes. And now she's doing this wheezing number. Dumper put his hand on his chest, opening his eyes wide and breathing deeply but strained, as if the air was coming through a pinch straw. So now I'm thinking, she's putting it on, let's jet. But then, but then, she tries to snatch the car keys from me, like snatching at them. And I start screaming, keep your hands to yourself. She's screeching, that's my car keys, that's my car keys. But like, hey, I took them off the kid. I'm not giving them up. But she's coming off like she's going to have a heart attack or something. They're mine, they're mine. I'm going to follow you. Everybody's yelling, give her the keys, fight the power. And Rocco, 
You know, if that lady had asked me for the keys like a human being, you know, maybe. But she snatched at them. I mean, fuck her. I got 100 people watching me like a hawk. So I say, keep your hands to yourself. Screw the keys. Because, like, if I back down, I don't care who it is. They're watching me like a hawk. So anyway, she's yelling, don't worry, baby. Don't worry, baby. The others are yelling, yo, thumper, that ain't right. This ain't right. And now the kid's crying, but, like, angry crying now, you know? Not like a crybaby, like angry because, you know, like I'm telling his mother to fuck off and all. And she's bugging out all over him with this heart attack routine. Anyways... We get him in the car, and his mother's banging on the window. I'm coming, baby. I'm coming. Don't you worry. The crowd's all raw. Any second, they're going to any second they're gonna start throwing shit. Believe me, I've been there. So we pull out. We're, back. we're going to the Western Precinct, right? The kid's in back with me crying. The minute we're off stage, I'm cool. Off stage, I'm always cool. I say to the kid, see what you started? See what you did? You got your mother all upset? Kid don't say nothing. Anyways, we take him over to the west, and he's in the cell. I'm typing up the arrest report. Boom, the door blows in. Here comes that old lady again. And she's got a whole bunch of friends, a bunch of old-timers. And she's wheezing and doing that old Fred Sanford bullshit, like when he talks to his wife in heaven. She's saying, where's my boy? Then she, like, sees him in the cage. She goes nuts. Her friends are, like, restraining her. She's wheezing and gasping and popping them bug eyes. Now, I'm getting really annoyed now. But, you know, all they say is, lady, you should give up cigarettes. Like a joke to break the tension. She gets all blinky on me. What'd you say? What'd you say? I said, you heard me. Meanwhile, I'm just heads down type, and I got my glasses on, tap, tap. She says, I got emphysema. How dare you make comments like that? My doctor says, I got a year. I got to go into the hospital next week. He says, I got a year. How dare you say that to me? Thumper took a breather as two cops escorted a barefoot man into the precinct. Like, anyways, maybe I shouldn't have mouthed off. Baracko, this lady... I don't know if she was telling the truth about this emphysema thing. I mean, I've seen her around and all since then. She's walking and shit. But anyway, so like to change the subject, I just tossed her the car keys, like, here, take a ride. I didn't throw them at her. I just, you know, like underhand. She starts screaming again, don't you throw things at me. Meanwhile, the kid starts going nuts in there like a rabid ape. I don't think he knew his mother had emphysema or whatever because he went nuts when she said that. I mean, who knows? She could have just said that for effect. And then when I toss to the car keys, like, oh, shit, they start yelling to each other, mother and son, everybody's crying. She starts running around the freaking room. She's, he's punching the bars now, hurting himself a lot more than I did, right? And who do you think got blamed for those goddamn injuries? She's yelling, I want to file a complaint. They say, hey, do your worst. I give him my name, my number. Then all of a sudden, this freaking minister waltzes in. Some Donovan-looking motherfucker's got big blonde curls, sandals, these Banana Republic shorts on with the thigh hairs sticking out. All of a sudden, it's, hi, I'm Reverend Bob Gould from Most Holy. He's got his arm around this lady. She's wheezing, look at my boy, look at my boy. The kid's sobbing, cursing me out. You leave my mother alone. This folk priest says, can I help in any way? I know the family. Can I help? The prick helped okay. He helped the lady file a 620 on me for abusiveness. He helped the kid file a 620 on me for excessive use of force. Can I help? So, like, I filed my charges, they filed theirs, you know, with all the filing, counterfiling, all that bullshit, everybody wound up dropping everything. It was just a whole big bunch of bullshit. The kid told his lawyer he just saw everybody raising up, and he just did it as a goof. He didn't run with any of that crowd. He was on his way to work. Who knows? He said he just did it. Like, who knows? Thumpeth shrugged, looked off unhappily. You know, I'll tell you what the whole shouting match came down to. This. It was all about this. The kid disrespected me by raising up in my face. I dissed him by throwing him up against the fence and doing a Johnson check. He dissed me by walking off. I dissed him by flicking his hat in front of his people. He dissed me by giving me a shove. 
The mother comes along, she disses me by snatching the keys. I diss her by making fun of her wheeze. Everything's this, because you know, out there all you got to your name is your heart. You got a crowd around you, you got to show heart. Not just them, but us too. We go in, we don't show heart, we let ourselves get this. Jesus Christ, they'll be all over us. We might as well disband the unit, you know what I'm trying to say? I mean, I know you know what I'm trying to say. The whole thing's a trap. You got a crowd on you, you best got to act a part or you're nothing. It's unfortunate, but them's the rules. I don't know, I see the kid around, I see the mother. I don't say we're friends now, but like everything's cool more or less. We all understand everybody did what they had to do and you know, life goes on. Thanks. <clears throat> so, um, I'm not sure how to do this part of it. I guess if anybody has any questions or complaints or anything. Yeah. yeah. I'll repeat the question. So everybody hears them. Yeah, Spike Lee's doing clockers, yeah. No, it wasn't my decision, but you know, I wasn't unhappy about it either. Originally, I wrote the script of Clockers, uh, which I really didn't want to do because I spent three years writing a book. Um, and then in order to sell the book for a lot of money, I had to come along as a screenwriter because they didn't know. It's, it's not really a book that lends itself to like a guaranteed hit. It's no Jurassic Park. Um, you know, basically, you have, from a marketing point of view, everything is wrong. But they figured they were gambling on the fact that it was had this veneer of like big book, like a significant book, and combine that with you know the fact that I was had a good reputation as a screenwriter. So if I'm doing my own version of my own big book, it was worth the gamble. So I spent a year and a half writing it with uh, Scorsese, Marty Scorsese. At the end of which, he decided that he didn't want to direct it after all. And Spike Lee stepped into the breach and said, "Well, I want to direct it." Uh, it's the good news and the bad news. The bad news is that I don't direct anything I don't write myself. So he read all my scripts and then went off and wrote his own. So we'll get a co-credit, but it'll be basically his script. Well, no, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, the director's the boss. You know, he's the director. It's really interesting. Um, I, I, the, on, the only power I have is the power to be persuasive, but I'm, I'm basically a guest on this project right now. I don't have any official status. You know, the minute I get paid, I'm off, you know, uh, you know, unless the director wants me around as a consigliore or something. So, you know, it's a very fragile thing because on one hand, I want, I want this thing to be good, so I want to hit him with about, you know, a lot of things that this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. But I got to do it in such a way as that He's going to want me around, you know. It's very, very tricky because I don't have any, uh, I'm not standing on solid ground. So, uh, no, I don't have any, I, I, I have the input that he allows me to have. So, yeah. The slang language? You know, it's like, well, I, I'll, let me broaden you. The question is, it's like, how did you learn the slang? I mean, it's basically, uh, I grew up in the Bronx, but uh, I mean, you know, the language of clockers and the language of ladies' man and all the other books are entirely different. Basically, 
you know, slangs, you know, you, you get slang by osmosis. You know, you're just there and you absorb what's being said. It's very tricky with sl- writing about slang because when I, was, when I was hanging out in Jersey City writing clockers and you got all these, these kids there and the language changes every 10 minutes. And if you go in there with a pith helmet and a memo pad, you not, not only do you look like a fool, but you're going to be a fool when you, if, you, if you use what you, what you get because by the time it hits publication, it's like Hepcat, you know? Um, so basically what I found, I said basically I made up my own thing, you know, because, I mean, you know, the language is like, is like Quicksilver. So I, did, I didn't go, I mean, it wasn't to the point, I'm not an anthropologist, it wasn't to the point to, like, nail anything except, you know, nail, n- you know, nail general truths. Um, you know, things just have the veneer of authenticity. That's good enough. I mean, otherwise you can drive yourself nuts, and it's besides the point. You know. Yeah. Uh, well, the question is, what takes longer to prepare for a screenplay or a book, and how long does it take? Well, like I just said, one book I did in three weeks, um, and the screenplay at Clockers took me a year and a half. I mean, um, so, I mean, it's every story. You never learn how to write a story because each story dictates its own way of getting told, and it's always different. I mean, the story writes you in a way, and it depends what the story comes from. If the story is coming from a situation, that's easy because you've got the whole situation. If the story is evolving from like a like a moral dilemma or a particular character, and trying to thrust a character up against a brick wall, that's a little harder to figure out because you're just delving in, in more elusive things. You know, how do, you know, like how do you express character and how and how do you test the character? You know, it's plot-driven things. I tend to things that are driven by plot. Like, oh, I got a great idea. The minute I say I got a great idea, it's a screenplay because it's all external. See, it's about this bank robbery. See. You know, and uh, all, all the guys in the bank robbery squad, they're all in wheelchairs, see? You know, and, you know, I mean, I got a great idea. That's a screenplay because that's all outside. It's not anything inside. The things that come to me that are about people that are about myself or about things that I'm trying to work out that I really don't have that good a handle on and all tend to be more internal wrestlings, they tend to be books. And the reason being is that when you write a book, nobody can mess with you. What you write is the finished product. What you write in a screenplay is always going to be touched by others because it's a whole it's a whole group process. And the ultimate thing is that somebody, not you, is putting down an average of twenty million dollars to tell this story. So the word is not sacred. You know, they're gonna to try to make it as marketable as possible. So if you have something that really means a lot to you, that's really inside you, that you're wrestling with, and you're not even sure when you get it down if this is the way you want it, you don't want anybody messing with that. So you keep that in the book department. Otherwise, all people are going to get on that and they're going to make changes or they're going to impose changes on it that have nothing to do with the story and the things that you're trying to work on. So the things that I, that I do as screenplay, I do because it pays a lot more money. It's usually faster because it's all external. It's like what happens next. What, screenplays are all about momentum and what happens next. Character is, is, is coincidental. I mean, it's nice to have character and it's nice to be a good writer, but it's not necessary if you have a good story. Um, so that's you know that's that's like the craft 
Screenwriting is a craft. That's like a job, a well-paying job that drives you nuts, but pays well. Novels this is is where you where I, could, where I feel more like an artist because I have a vision that nobody's going to tamper with. And when you're writing screenplays, you, you know, I always say you're the writer, but you're not the author. The author is always the director, the person who takes what you write and interprets it their way for the screen. So they become the final vision server, not you. So screenplays are usually taking me about three months to do a first draft. They, you know, I like doing the research. I like you know hanging out. I like it a lot better than writing. And uh, you know, so I just you know I'll hang out for a few weeks with the people I need to learn things from, and then I'll go off and write this story. But screenplays are about two dimensions. It's about a screen. It's about what's seen and what's heard. You know, there's no world of the interior. There's no inner life. There's no back history that comes into play. Nobody has a thought. You know, and was there some sort of thought balloon in his movie? You know, so the things you know that move on that on that on that two-dimensional level go fast. They write fast. All you have to do is have a good handle on a story. Bang, check, please. You know, I, I wish it was that easy. But anyways, you know, novels they, they drive you nuts, but y what's there is yours. Nobody can mess with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 the comment was that it felt like Clockers was like a world complete. Uh, you know, and it's, I guess if I'm, if I'm judging what you're saying, it's that in, in some ways it's kind of like an, an alien world, but it's presented whole, like welcome to this world, yet within this world that's sort of different. There are fully realized characters that are completely different from each other. Am, am I phrasing it right, or? Yeah. Well, you know, I said it, it, within the bleakness, the people evolve in different ways. You all growing up in this petri dish of misery, and. What happened with, with, with Clockers is I didn't know this world at all. It was basically a, a, it was Jersey City. And I started hanging out in Jersey City because I knew a cop there and I, when I was going to write Sea of Love, you know. So it's the only place I knew where to hang out with cops so I could learn something. And through hanging out with cops, I, I, I learned, uh, I hooked up with their opposite number, you know, which are the bad guys, the, the drug dealers, you know, the hustlers, this, that, and the other. And I also met the people who, by virtue of where they live, the cops are a daily reality in their life with people in the projects. And I grew up in the projects, but I grew up in the projects at a different time and place. It was blue collar, um, everybody employed, everybody went to school, even the um, families were basically intact. And here I am again, coming from the 50s into the late 80s, back to the projects for the first time, and it was a completely alien place. And I was sort of seized with the fact that I had to relearn what I thought I knew from scratch. And I became obsessed with l learning as much as I could. It's sort of like I went to the, I always say like I went to the drink the ocean. And what the problem was with that is that I had no idea what to put, what was important for the book and what was just background for me to give me confidence to write the story. So uh, when in doubt, leave everything in. 
So I just put in everything I learned for three years. And it was, uh, it was a nightmare, and I was glad I did it. Um, but basically, I just stayed there, and I didn't have a game plan. Whatever hit me, hit me. And I was, I mean, on one hand, I was taking notes, but the notes were secondary to just what was getting under my skin. Like, I'd be going out with the police one night. The next night, I'd be with this mother that had four kids and was living off a check in the mailbox. The third night, I was going out with a drug dealer. The fourth night, I was with a methadone clinic worker. The fifth night, I was with a legal aid lawyer. The sixth night, I was with a cop who was entirely different from the cop I hung out with the first night. You know, and in the seventh night, uh, I... I I rested, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, but uh, this is a process that I, was, I became addicted. I went through the Holland Tunnel about a million times. I mean, I was dreaming about the Holland Tunnel because I live on this side. Um, and I would take notebooks, and I- anything that hit me, I would write down. Anything I heard, somebody had a weird belt buckle, I'd, I'd write it to anything and everything. And I did this for two years without knowing what my story was. And these notebooks would be piling up, piling up, piling up, piling up. And I got addicted to hanging out, and I got addicted to this thing of like, I have to know everything in the world before I write my first word of fiction. Otherwise, I'm being irresponsible. And it became like lunacy. I wound up, um, it, you know, it was like uh, it was like Rain Man. I mean, I had this like stack of you know notebooks, and I mean, some of these notebooks, uh, you know, they were flip over notebooks, and I was writing on both sides, and I never knew which way to turn, so. I'm reading April's notes, the next thing I know, I'm on February 91. It's like, how did I get here? It's like, then the, the notebook would be flipping around, and 400 notebooks are flipping. And um, my, my, my editor kept saying, well, uh, do you think you learned enough? I said, well, no, you know, because, you know, I want to write about this, this, this woman that she's on welfare, but, I mean, how could you write about welfare if you don't really understand the employment situation? So I'm going to hang out with employment counselors. After I have about it. But, you know, what type of person becomes an employment counselor? So I'm going to hang out at Catholic schools, you know. It's like, you know, and then I just go on and he's going, oh, yes. you know, this is like the book. This is like the book that's never going to get written here. It's like Truman Capote's Answered Prayers, you know. Um, so he basically, you know, asked me, like, the, the most disorienting and freaky question anybody ever asked me as a writer. Just tell me this. What's the first sentence of your book? You know, and I looked at this big stack of notebooks. And, uh, da, da, da. and so I said, all right, I'll be right back. And I came back. It took me 30 days. To, I, I, I tried to write a first page over and over again. I was paralyzed at first because I became so overwhelmed uh, by learning that, you know, I forgot, hey, it's fiction. You're allowed to lie. You're allowed to make things up. You know enough about this world. Just make shit up. You, and you're not going to be that far off. You, you, I mean, you have an internal cop now that, you, I mean, you have a, a, a bullshit police in you. You know, you, and I didn't trust myself. I, I, I became overwhelmed with, with this mandate I gave myself to learn everything. And it took me about a month to break through that. Because what is the first page when you spend three years learning about everything? And where everything was like, you, you were like a baby. You knew nothing. And everything you learned, you learned from scratch. What's the first sentence? What's the first scene? And so it took me a month, and I, I spent this whole month trying to write a first chapter. And the first chapter was so self-conscious. And I'd written nothing but screenplays for eight years before that, so I didn't even have my chops as a prose writer back. Six hundred pages, and I started with Rocco because I thought I knew I would know him better, and I, I just couldn't get it. I was just. 
So I decided I'm going to start. You know what I always say, like, you know, first dates are always such a disaster. Why can't you just start out on a second date? You know, well, that's what I did. It's like, all right, I'm going to start out on a second chapter. And I just started out like sort of like I'm like hovering over to over Strike's brain and dangling from a helicopter. And I just cut my wire and fall in. And I just start writing stream of consciousness from Strike's point of view. It was like literally like starting out on a second date. I didn't get no preamble, no preface. Just, I mean, I almost started like in mid-sentence, mid-conversation with himself. And I just winged it. And uh, it worked. Now, people who read the book say, well, you know, if you can get through the first 30 pages, you can get through the book. Because, you know, I mean, because it is like a head that is not, you don't usually find in literature. Um, and the language, I mean, I didn't, I didn't try to, like, I didn't glossarize it. You know, there was no glossary. So, I mean, basically, it's either you got to pick it up or you don't, you know, like Clockwork Orange. Uh, but that's the only way. I, I had to jumpstart the book because of all the, all the work I put in. I psyched myself out. And part of the problem I'm having right now as a fiction writer is I sort of feel like, you know, the only way I'm allowed to write now is to go learn something, you know. Um, and I feel like this real block about making stuff up, you know. Well, I guess that's what I call a fiction, right? That's what I tell myself, you know. Yeah. I'm sorry. When I look back at my old writing, I didn't catch the last part of the first sentence. Oh, what makes me cringe when I look at my old stuff? Um, it it just seems you know I feel like if I have a weakness as a writer, if I have a weakness. Ripley's, you know, I mean, one of one of one of my major weaknesses as a writer is I'm terrified of not being entertaining, and the way that I would be right, you know, in life too, and and the way that I would deal with that in my first couple of books was by trying to make the prose as dazzling and pyrotechnic as possible, because I'm totally afraid of losing you for two sentences if I wrote sort of just sober, thoughtful observation. So it was, everything was like yada, yada, yada. And when I look at my writing now, uh, for, for my first couple of books, there's this, fran I, this, this anxiety to please in it. You know, I, I, I can see this like, I mean, I was editing myself when I was reading that lady, ladies' man thing. I was leaving out a lot of the, you know, the more hysterical similes and metaphors. But I mean, I know what it, con and, you know, just because I know it, that doesn't mean I don't do it anymore. But I'm very painfully aware of it now. Whereas I was, I thought it was an asset when I wrote it, and now it's an embarrassment. You know, n not that I still don't have the same, you know, impulse in me to keep doing that. But I had this editor on Clockers who was terrific, because my first draft of Clockers had that same sort of like you know, hyperactive, hysterical, uh, we aim to please type pro style, which is like being, like Martin Amos said, reviewing one of my books, it's like being trapped in an elevator with a DJ. <laughs> and, you know, and I see it, you know, screw him, the dwarf, but still, <laughs> you know, but still, I mean, that doesn't make the guy wrong. Um, you know, and I, I, but I know, I, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know what he's talking about, I know what he's talking about. I won't do it anymore, I swear to God, I won't, I won't, I won't. I'll kill myself, I swear to God, I'll rip my lungs out. So, you know, when I wrote the first draft of Clockers, I had 600 pages of characters that were very 
uh, new to literature. You know, like this kid's strike and this kid's then the whole world is. Not the type of world that gets between the pages, covers of a book. So I had all these, you know, for pardon, pardon for, for one of a better expression, uh, exotic characters and situations for people, you know, to absorb. And this world that was basically life and death, it was homicide and drugs and the banality of evil and this and that and the other, uh, in a very sort of painstakingly, luridly realistic way. And on top of that, I had a narrator who was the DJ that you were trapped in the elevator with. And my editor said, when he saw the first draft, which was 1,200 pages, he said, well, you're going to have to go back, and the first thing you're going to have to do is take the hand that writes this panicky um, narrative and tie it behind your back and write with your other hand. You cannot do that with a book like this because, I mean, your characters are so startling that if you try to write this neutral voice in a startling a tone, you're going to be in competition with your characters, and the book's going to get too heavy, and it's going to sink. You can't compete with your characters now. People aren't going to be able to get through it. So pull back on all that anxiety and that we aim to please style. Just write very sober. Let your characters, um, this is my expression, is you know, let, let them dig their own graves and build their own monuments. Just You just... You, you, I mean, you're a teletype, you know. You're not a character in this book, you know. Pull back. So once they did that, it worked. I feel like, you know, Clockers has got a quality, at least on a page, that, I mean, it's not better, worse, good, bad. It's, it's, it's more sober and, and more focused than I've ever allowed myself before. So that's the thing that makes me cringe the most when I see all this anxiety in there. Also, what cringes me, you know, when you're 24, you know everything. When you're 44, you know nothing. So I see that, too. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what happens is, the, you know, the question is that what what is the effect it have on 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 a person to to you know immerse themselves in like three years of you know this you know this kind of you know struggling and suffering, and uh, it I, I didn't devastate. To be honest, it didn't devastate me. I mean, I was so absorbed in what I was learning. And I was also making contact with a lot of people. So I wasn't, it wasn't like walking through Rwanda. I mean, you know, these are lives that are ongoing. You know, and I'm interacting with the people, so it's not like the horror, the horror. I mean, you know, these people are walking. They might be wounded, but they're walking. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm get, I've gotten involved in their lives, and I, you know, I've got relationships with these people still, you know, uh, both the cops and the people in the projects. Um, so it wasn't as bad as all that because, you know, you be, you became part. I became part of part of the drama, uh, you know. And in these little ways, you you know, they have an impact on you. You have an impact on them. So it it, it wasn't like walking through the, a charnel house, although you know, you step back and you write about it. And as and as a narrator, you're helpless because you're observing. But in the process of of learning about this stuff, I was also interacting which wasn't as frustrating or wasn't as demoralizing, you know. Yeah. 
what 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 are the what's the reaction of the people who were the, the inspiration for the characters? Well, it's like this, you know, the drug dealers. Uh, I gave them the book. Uh, they they didn't read it. Um, the cops read it. Um, every, yeah, everybody likes the book. I mean, at least they're going to tell me they like the book. Uh, you know, in fact, I mean, it is fiction, and uh, you know, but everybody, you know, notoriety is fame. You know, it's like free advertising. And you know, I wasn't scandalous, and I wasn't unfair to anybody. I and mean, basically, I would tell people, listen, whatever you say to me, say to me like, you know, it's okay for, for this writer to know about it because I'm going to use it. You know, and then I would constantly go back and I'd say, I'm going to use that. You got you you got anything you want to say to me about that right now? You know, you know, for or forever hold your peace. So I was very careful not to make people feel. I mean, you know, I couldn't have done the book without the people, so I'm not going to screw anybody. I mean, the best thing I can do is, you know, honestly represent what I see, courtesy of what they show me. And uh, it was funny because um, one of the drug dealers in the book is this guy Frankie, and I, I didn't give him the book because, you know, he was, he was a real heavyweight, and I, you know, I didn't want to like hang with the guy after the book was done, you know. And so I never gave him the book, and you know, I forgot to give the book to a lot of the cops too because I didn't see them, you know. I, the last time I saw them was like three years ago, and then, you know, because I hung out with them then, and the book came out three years later, I, it was out of touch with them. But uh, Nightline, Ted Koppel's Nightline, wanted me to do a documentary about the lives of the people in the Curry's Woods Project in Jersey City, where I based a lot of the characters on. So I reached out to a lot of the, the people, a lot of the players that I hung out with, saying, we're going to do this documentary, do you want to be in it? Because um, you were the inspiration for the characters, you all know. And everybody pretty much said yes. Um, and I wanted to hook up with this guy, Frankie, the guy I was trying to avoid. Um, and I, I didn't, but I thought this guy really should be part of this because I thought he was eloquent. And uh, all right, let me bite the bullet and give Frankie a call. So I get Frankie, and I never gave him a copy of the book. And he comes by, uh, picks me up on Martin Luther King Boulevard. We're driving around looking for some other drug dealer that I want to use. And he's sitting there, and he says, yeah, you never gave me the book. And I said, oh, yeah, well, I, I lost your beeper. He says, yeah, you know how I found out about it? I was in jail. And this guy is reading a book, and he says, yo, Frankie, you got to read this. This guy's just like you. <laughs> and I look at it, and I look at your picture in the back, and I said, oh, that's that white guy. You know, so, you know I said, Oh yeah, uh, this is damn. And then he has the book in the in the glove compartment, and he's saying, "I had to buy that book myself, twenty dollars. God damn, twenty dollars." And we're driving up. He's going twenty motherfucking dollars. I said, "All right, right." I put forty dollars in the book, and he said, he started laughing. And he said, "All right, that's all I wanted." So I mean, you know, and a funny thing is that now a lot of these people, the, both the cops and these guys are now hanging out with the actors that are going to play their counterparts, like Delroy Lindo uh, is, is going to play Frankie. So now I'm sending actors over to the project. And Harvey Keitel is playing, you know, the, uh, Rocco. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's all this interaction between, uh, you know, life and, and, and theater now. Uh, this is, you know, this is the song that never ends. You know, so it, it's funny, though. It's just, it just keeps going on and on. I also paid people, you know, that, that's, I mean, that's one thing I could have done, which I did, is I paid everybody across the board. I mean, my standard fee was 100 bucks a day. 
you know, and they're research associates. I didn't feel conflicted about it because I wasn't a journalist. I wasn't asking for truth. I just say, let me hang with you and let's see what I see. And it, I'll pay you for your time because I'm going to make money off this book. So let me spread it around. So, you know, it cost me, you know, a lot. I mean, it made $30,000, $40,000. Um, but I also made a lot. So, but, you know, we spread it around. And um, I, what happened was that I was paying the cops the same thing I was paying the drug dealers. And now the cops knew all the drug dealers. They set me up with the drug dealers. Uh, and not, that doesn't mean they're in cahoots. They just, it's a small city. If you're of a certain age and in Jersey City, you've always been in Jersey City because nobody moves to Jersey City. You know, so if you're 40 and you're a cop and you're a bad guy and you're, and you're, in, and you're both in Jersey City, you both went to Snyder High School. You both, you've known each other since the giddy-up. So they know each other, and yeah, it's a small world, and you know, you're going to bump into each other every now and then, and what are you going to do, gnash your teeth and growl at each other? You know, it's like, you know, live and let live. Well, you know, if there's a warrant out, they will probably ask you to pick up the guy because he knows you all your whole life, and he's probably going to make less of a fuss if you go to arrest him. And it's the reality of it. And I was hanging out with this drug dealer, and I was giving him $100 a night, and then I was hanging out with the, the, the narcotics cop, that set me up with the drug dealer. And I was paying him $100 a night. And this guy was like a lieutenant um, in the narcotics squad. And so one night I was with Frankie, I gave him 100 bucks. Next night I'm out with Lieutenant, uh, you know, L Lieutenant Bob, and I go take him to a restaurant and buy him dinner in the My Way Lounge, you know, and a um, couple of drinks. I ask him five questions about, you know, how does one plant an undercover in a drug operation? answers give him a hundred bucks and he gives me this really dirty look like he's glaring at me and I didn't know what was going on as the cops is so paranoid that you know you, uh, I'm not even gonna try to decode this one you know and then the third night I'm out with Frankie again at the end of the night and I give him a hundred bucks again and he starts laughing he says uh, yeah last night you went out with the lieutenant didn't you I said yeah he says, yeah, I saw, uh, yeah, I saw him uh, two days ago. I said, would you, he says, would you pay him 100 bucks? I said, yeah. He starts laughing. He says, I told him you were paying me 500 bucks. You know? <laughs> so, you know, that stuff would happen, you know. I, I, I became like this, this thing to talk about in Jersey City. They were passing me around. You know, you know I, I, it was like volleyball, and I was the volleyball or, or the bong or something, you know. So, you know. I became this like little news item in Jersey City, you know. He's around again, so yeah. I, no, not real. I'm, you know, no. Was, was I ever in danger? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of situations where I wasn't too smart to be there, but uh, you know, I'm not. I wasn't like, uh, you know, like this fearless reporter. I mean, it's not like you know, I, I see, um, you know, I read like Roger Rosenblatt's been Ro Rwanda. Or this one's in Serbia, you know. It's not like I'm going to a battlefront. I mean, you know, in, in a metaphorical way it is. But, you know, I'm not stupid. I'm, you know, it's like I'm going to, if I'm going into a bad place, I'm going, I'm going to be with the scariest guy there, and I'm paying him. <laughs> and I, the whole thing is just remember to keep that finger hooked in that back belt loop. You know, don't take it where, where the thou goest. I'm going with him. Because the minute you get separated from people, be they the cops or the drug dealers, and you're standing there, and you might be 20 feet away from them, and you can't see them. It takes you about 10 nanoseconds to realize you don't belong here on either side of this. This is not your scene.
you know. And you get lulled into thinking, you, you know, you're invulnerable because, you know, you're with the police. What are they going to do? Or you're with Big Bad Frankie. What are they going to do? But, you know, in fact, in the matter is, you know, I just had to keep my head about me and, you know, no, you know, nothing I like I like to milk that one, but I don't nothing really bad happened. Yeah. No. It, that's a, that's a, it, the question is, am I interested in directing? And the answer is no. Uh, I really feel like I'm a writer. Like a lot of screenwriters want to become directors simply because it's the next step up the evolutionary ladder. Uh, I, th that's a whole different art form. Plus, you really have to be into like grouping. You know, really have to be into politics and power and learning how to control people and getting people to do what you want. The thing I like about writing is that it's just me. It's just me and a clipboard and a pen. And I'm free. You know, I, I just got off, I went on the set of the Sean Connery movie. I did some rewriting. I've been moving down the writing food chain. Now I'm doing script doctoring, which is, you know, they, they're ready to do a film, and somebody finally reads the script that they've had two years and go, geez, this sucks. <laughs> Quick, throw money at it, you know. And so, they, you know, they hire a writer to come in an emergency due to rewriting. So I've, I've done that uh, a couple of times in the last few months for money, purely for money. And you know, and when you get on a set, and you see the actual, the, it's the court, it's the Borgia court. I mean, I mean, you know, the the agencies and, and the studios, and there's the director, and there's the, and then there's, there's this crazy insecure powerful movie star here, and this other crazy insecure powerful movie star over there. There's nothing more frightening than a frightened man with a lot of power, and that's all you have. That's all movie stars are, and uh, you know, there's some exceptions, but I can't think of them. But, you know, I mean, but basically it's you put so much energy into stuff that has nothing to do with creativity. And that's just not for me. You know, and if, if I was just a screenwriter, then I would probably take a shot at being a director because I don't know how screenwriters can live with themselves. You're endlessly writing and writing and constantly having this stuff changed. You know, it's because really, you, really, you really don't feel like an artist. You feel like a craftsperson which is what you are. But then, you know, if I had novels, so I can live with the screenwriting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, see, but, but, but that's the, he's saying, like, you know, basically, uh, how do you feel about the, the book being sort of taken out of your hands and it, it becomes the vision of somebody else now, right? Well, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, the old, the old answer to that is, the, you know, the, this, this thing that James Cain said that everybody, every screenwriter, well, this screenwriter quotes, and said, well, what do you think of what Hollywood did to your books? You know, like, Postman Always Rings Twice, Double Indemnity. And he says, they didn't do anything to my books. My books are right up on the shelf. And that's how I feel. No matter what Spike does to the movie, and I really hope it's a good movie. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not at odds with him at all. I mean, you know, I'm very excited about Delroy Lindo and, and Harvey Keitel and John Turturro's in it. And it's like, you know, I mean, you know, it's like everybody else. It's like, oh boy, a movie, you know. 
And of course I would like it to be my script, but it's not. But no matter what happens to the movie, the book will always be mine. And what I found from when they did movies out of the Wanderers and Blood Brothers, and they weren't very good movies, the first thing they say when they pan the movie in the first paragraph of the bad movie review is to say how great the source material was. Now, where these people were when you were getting all these bad book reviews, I don't know. But it's, you know, whatever, whatever happens to the movie clockers, the book will always be mine. And that's what I wrote. And even if I wrote the script clockers and they treated that script like the Book of Kells and, and they were going to shoot that script, it's still going to change. I'm not the director. You know, of course, I'd rather be the screenwriter, sole screenwriter, but I'm not. And, you know, the dogs bark and the caravan moves on. You know, I, I've got other things to do. Clockers is done. You know, I just want them to shoot the damn thing at this point. You know, I'm going to get on with my life. So, yeah, I'm, I could be happier, but I could also be unhappier. Some sort of vacillating answer. But So maybe just one more question. Yeah. Jim? It depends, you know, it's, it's like every one is different from every other one. I mean, sometimes I, the story comes to me full-blown, and I can just bang it out. Sometimes, you know, you see something out of the corner of your eye, and it sticks in your head, and you keep picking at it, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's just different every time. Um, sometimes, when, when you know too much before you write, it comes out too arid, because... You didn't leave enough room for invention because you know you had the whole thing locked tight before you even started. So sometimes it's better if it's a little messy because there's more exploration going on. I found out you can only know just so much before you actually start writing. There are always things that come up in the physical act of writing because you're actually you know becoming the characters and you know you're you're you're, you're sort of touching them with this pencil. Things will evolve. In, just in the physical gestures, things will pop up. They could never have popped up in the abstract before you started to writing. So you always got to leave room for that. You know, things will change. I mean, my favorite story about that is uh, when I was at Columbia in the early 70s, one of my teachers was Alan Silito. And uh, when he wrote uh, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning and Loneliness at a Long Distance Run. He's one of the angry young men who is now one of the angry old men. Um, and... Uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning, the main character was this, was this uh, and, uh, labor factory worker in, uh, I think it was Nottingham, you know, some industrial section of England. Uh, he says when he started writing the book, the first chapter took place in a pub in Nottingham, and he had this sailor walk in, and the, sail the book was going to be about the sailor, and he had the sailor walk in and challenge anybody to a drink-off. Then he had this other character, a local, you know, yokel, and he took up the sailor's uh, challenge. And he started drinking and drinking. He was writing about this drinking contest. And halfway through the drinking contest, he started getting more interested in the local guy than the sailor. So by the end of the drinking contest, he had the sailor pass out, get carried out of the bar and out of the book. And the book took off about this guy. I mean, that happens, you know? I don't want to romanticize it by saying sometimes the book writes you, but you know, you, you, you always gotta, you know, you always gotta leave room 
you know, it's just different every time. So, all right, one, one last one there, yeah. I never got that criticism. I was waiting for it, but I never got it. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like I'm a writer. I'll write about anybody I want as long as I do justice to them and, you know, create them as fully realized characters. If I'm writing about people in such a way as it, it doesn't take you anywhere that you haven't been before in, in your stereotypical notions of people, then you say, well, that's ex exploitation. But if I'm creating characters that, that do justice to the people that I'm writing about, that's my job. I mean, because if you want to get into that political correctness thing, well, if I can't write about people because they're a different color than me, then I don't want any people of a different color writing about white people. And I don't want because I'm straight, I better not write about gays, and therefore gays better not write about me. And because I'm a man, I can't write about women, and women can't write about me. And because I'm Jewish, I can't write about Christians, and Christians can't write. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be writing about a phone booth, you know? <laughs> it's like the job of the writer is to take on a life not your own. It's the act of imagining lives and realizing lives, not your own. And there really is no limitation to that. The only mandate is to do justice to what you plan to do. So, you know, I, no, I, don't, I don't have any problems with that. I didn't hear any problems with that, you know. So anyways, no, thank you. very much Richard thank you all for coming and don't forget 6 o'clock on Thursday happy all the time and next Tuesday at 6.30 Robert Stone <laughs>